Hello and welcome to Furloughed, defining moments worth talking about. I'm your host, Leonard Cochran, and of course we have Steve Otterstrom with us today. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing really well. Um, it, it was a, a busy week. I, I had uh, lots of work to do um, with uh, the independent contract uh, work that I've been working on, which is nice. It's, it's actually uh, one of the first weeks uh, that I've had really close to a 40-hour work week. So, <laughs> ah, um, of course, when you're doing independent contract work, 40 hours is more like 60 hours. So it was a very, very busy work <laughs> work week. I hear you. Well, I've been getting set up to do some contract work myself. And uh, so I'm, I've completed what training is required and waiting for the next step of that process. And so it sounds like I'm going to get a little bit of a breather before I have to jump back into that. So I'll be working on some smaller projects this week to fill up my time here. My 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 advice to you is take a very deep breath <laughs> during that time that you have, because uh, one, one of the things that uh, is certainly um, beneficial to us that have worked in uh, the digital world of training and development is that uh, so many organizations are now going to um, having to do everything virtual or they're trying to do so much more virtual that there's just a lot of um, need for help out there right now. So (laughs) once you get in and once they know that you can do it, uh, your calendar does fill up pretty quickly. So, All right. I'll keep that in mind. Well, I am really excited about uh, today's guest, um, and I think it's someone that you are somewhat familiar with, Leonard. I, I know um, in the past we've joked that Leonard is the one who finds all of the talent uh, to come onto these shows. Uh, for the most part, if you don't know Leonard yet, it's probably that just that you don't remember him, that you probably <laughs> at some point cross paths with him in an airport or somewhere and he remembers you because that's one amazing thing about Leonard is he doesn't forget people very easily. But in this case, of all the talent that you have ever come up with, um, this next guest is someone that I met when you came out uh, to Salt Lake and we um, visited. And uh, her name is Paula, and she is the residential program director at Leah's House. Um, And I did give the last name on purpose because I wanted to hold off for our guests, because when they hear the last name, they're going to know the relationship, and that is that she is Paula Cochran. So That is correct. (laughs) And she is also married to you. Yes. And, and uh, outside of our home, most people know her as Miss Paula. You know, we're at that wonderful <laughs> stage in life where everybody has to call you Mr. or Miss if you're in the South. They, and that's a, that's a courtesy thing. It's not necessarily a reflection of age. Because so. <laughs> you seem really young to me, and I know Paula's even younger, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, why don't you go ahead and... Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a little bit about um, uh, what your wife has been doing. And uh, uh, you don't have to go into all the details about what makes her so special. Other than I do want to say, uh, when I met her out here in Salt Lake, there was one thing about her personality that really just stood out above all others. And that, that Paula is someone who sees beneath the surface that, um, she is someone who will see the beauty in everybody's soul and the potential in every individual. Um, there is no um, bias. There's no just just one of the most 
intensely sincere people I have ever met in my entire life. So um, go ahead and tell us a little more. You've had a little more experience with her than I have. All right. Well, thanks, Steve. You've seen the other side. Maybe. maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I can tell you the other side now. No, no. Obviously, uh, you're you're right. Everybody loves Paula. And so uh, Steve and I had a conversation for our audience. I'll just kind of give a little backstory. Steve and I had a conversation about some of the volunteer work that Paula and I have been involved in lately and sort of the gaps between what the government is able to provide and the gaps that nonprofits or non-governmental organizations, NGOs provide. And so Paul is just one of those people that's out there trying to fill some of those gaps and help with those. That's all the technical side of it, but it, the heart side of it is where she's at. So rather than just ramble down that road, um, just wanted to bring Paula in to kind of talk about what she does because uh, she's been volunteering for a number of years. And so just kind of dig into her motivations is doing that some of the things that she does and what she sees in doing that so paula <laughs> welcome to the show my good dear. morning steve and Leonard. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on here so uh yeah um i have been uh volunteering for uh several years and uh i really just uh have a heart for people that have went through like poverty and have a lot of uh, um, just diff- you know dysfunctional families and different things that they go through, and I guess I could kind of relate because I I kind of experienced those things myself growing up. So uh, I have just had a heart for them, you know, wanting to reach out to see see what causes some of the things that uh, cause them causes the uh <clears throat> the uh, different traumas and stuff in their life and, and paul if you would for our audience just share some of the types of volunteer work that you've done and uh certainly kind of when you get chance explain a little bit what leah's house is just for clarity's sake okay uh well i started uh the one uh place that i volunteered for us which has been several years ago was an emergency shelter for children uh, it was it's a shelter where they take children out of a home because it's an emergency situation. And uh, at first, when I did that, I thought, oh, these poor children, you know, what kind of parents do they have, you know? And uh, so I really felt that, you know, just kind of uh, angry at the parents. Why are they not, you know, sheltering their kids or taking care of their children? And uh, then later on, I ended up... Uh, volunteering at uh it was about in 2016 i started volunteering at a women's shelter and i realized that these women were also victims of uh you know it's like a a a revolving door so they had been children that had been victims of abuse or trauma or just all kinds of things that had happened in their lives and how they masked that pain you know it was uh so it was just a continuing cycle going from one, uh, their parents to the children, you know. And I, so anyhow, it's just it, the women, it just I started working with the women in 2016. And it really just reached out to me to if we can help these uh, the adults so they can get their children back, you know, help them get back on the path. And it's just been uh, I, I just love it. I just love it. And I'm, I'm wondering as you talk about this, and I, I think it's really, really great. And I love hearing how 
you know, your, your perspective changed, you know, you'd seen these kids and, and that anger rightly so, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think we've all been in that situation where we watch something on the news and we thought, how can a parent do that? And, um, even just from the perspective, I, I wonder if sometimes these, these parents feel the same way. They, they feel like, how could I have done that? Could you describe maybe a little bit when somebody comes to yes. a place like um, Leah's house? Yes. How, how is that person when they first come in? What is that situation? When they first come in, I mean, they, have, they are drained. You know, they're drained physically, mentally. They've lost everything. They've lost their children. They've lost their family. They've lost their homes. They've lost their transportation. And I mean, it's just like there's just no life in them at all. They're totally drained. And, uh, you know, and I know people look at them and say, oh, well, why don't you just quit? Why don't you? Well, they have that desire to quit themselves. But for some reason, they have been masking that pain so long with the drugs and the alcohol that they don't know any other way out of it. And all it takes is another trauma in their life, which they're going to constantly, while they're doing drugs and, and drinking, they're constantly going to have trauma. So it just shoves them even further into this addiction. And um, so, and what I really like seeing is when they come in there and they, they have a place to rest uh, and they have a place, you know, where they have that peace and they have, they start learning more about what is happening inside their brain and their body and what the drugs and the alcohol is doing to it. And they have all these tools that they can use to work with to overcome this. And also our program is a faith-based program. So they come in and they start uh, just taking that time and, uh, you know, they learn how to forgive you know, and, and a lot of that forgiveness, that's the hardest thing is the forgiveness. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times when we see uh, someone being doing really when someone has had a lot of abuse to them and they really do not want to forgive that abuser. But when they let go of that abuse and they um, start forgiving them, you know, it's all of those things where they can start getting their life in order so their life can be restored to them. And I've seen just the life come back into them and be restored, you know, where Mm -hmm. they start having their children start having relationship with them again, the people, their family members, they start having a relationship. And it's just a beautiful thing to see that life come back into them and then be a totally different person that come in that door, you know, when they first come in and uh, it's, you know, we have some that's successful and they, you know, they go ahead and they grow and they come and everything, you know, their life gets back together. And then we have some that don't, you know, they, they just can't seem to let go of the lies that's in their head. And they just, you know, some of them don't make it, you know, and, um, but that's, that's my heart is to see that miraculous change in them from being almost at death's door to full of life and full of, purpose and meaning, you know? Mm-hmm. And Paula, if, if you would, um, because a lot of people, the addiction itself is a, a hurdle that I think we need to address. Uh, cause I know a lot of people feel addiction is a choice. You know, they, they're, they're taking that drug, they're doing the alcohol, they're doing whatever they're doing 
you know, sleeping around, whatever it is they're doing. And so many people feel that it's a choice. But you had mentioned the trauma and oftentimes, uh, well, I know from <laughs> being married with you and hearing the stories, there is always, always some form of childhood trauma involved in these ladies' lives. Mm -hmm. uh, so not, not to be graphic, but kind of unpack some of the trauma and the things you see just, just to help people understand why that band-aid of addiction comes into play or why that band-aid of alcohol and drugs to kind of mask that okay. pain. Okay. Uh, um, because again, so many people just think, well, you know, yeah, you smoke pot and moved on to crack and mm -hmm. next thing you know, you're just down this long road, but it is a little deeper than that. If you kind of, uh, some of the stories maybe that you'd be comfortable in sharing that yeah. are not really graphic. <laughs> well, I know that, I know that um, my, all of these girls, a lot of it starts at just being a child, you know, uh, I have, uh, I, uh, there's a woman that her, she was actually nine years old when her mother was shot in front of her. And then she had trauma because of not having that mom in her life. She got uh, handed down to somebody else. And then there was sexual abuse involved. So for a little nine-year-old girl to go through all that in that short of time, she can't, you know, it, she can't even function. She's got so much pain in her life. And, uh, and then there's, there's ones that's went through sexual abuse, you know, where they couldn't even, you know, maybe even their parent, their, their parent that's supposed to protect them is the one that's letting them get engaged into this, you know, as a child. And, you know, then there's other sexual abuses are just, I mean, just, it's, it's crazy. Some, you know, even one of, uh, the ladies, you know, her mom was taking her to the doctor to get medication, you know, to share the medication with her, you know, get pain medication to share. I mean, there's just crazy story after story. And these children have to carry all this pain with them because a lot of times it involves family. And so they can't go and uh, tell on their family because then what's going to happen, they're going to end up foster care. And then when they end up in foster care, it could be worse. So it's just a, a, it's a, just a tumbling effect of trying to cover the pain and trying to uh, deal with the pain as a child, trying to deal with it themselves because they have nobody to go to because they have no covering no parent till, you know, that they can go to just, and so it, it causes a lifelong, uh, addiction because usually eventually they're going to turn and try to deal with that pain, either with drugs, alcohol, sometimes it's sex because a lot of times the sex gets involved with it because they have to pay for their addiction. And so what happens, it becomes, uh, we see the after effects as an adult and we think, Oh, they're a bad person. This person's bad. Don't, you know, but this is effects of all the way back from their childhood. And what we have to do is when we see that adult that's grown, that they can't figure out who they are because they've, you know, experienced so much sexual abuse or they, uh, they've learned how to survive by stealing. They've learned how to just, uh, ignore the pain they're going through by doing the drugs. You know, we're seeing a little child. I just, that's what I see when I look at these women. I see little children that didn't have 
that protection growing up. They didn't have someone to give them that love that they needed, you know. And uh, so, you know, a lot of times we have, we want to label these people as having, oh, you know, look at them. They're all messed up. But, you know, we all have ways that we try to deal with pain in our life. And some of them might not be, you know, drugs, alcohol, or whatever. It could be uh, overeating. It could be some of those social acceptable things, you know, but we still have those things that we try to mask the pain with, you know. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you're saying this, and I think for the benefit of our listeners, I, I just want to quickly bring up a concept that that, that uh, valid, adds more validity or even some, I guess not adds validity, but adds some backup to what Paula is saying. And it's what the CDC calls ACEs or adverse child experiences. And I think at some point Leonard and I would like to do a complete podcast on just this, but the CDC has identified childhood experiences that increase the potential for a number of different things. It's not just addiction, but the things that you talked about, you know, overeating, um, uh, uh, unhealthy sexual practices, um, traumatic brain injuries, um, and they, and they associate them with, um, several, what they call adverse child experiences. And I just kind of want to list some of these off really quick because it goes hand in hand with what Paula has just said. It has, um, three major areas, abuse, household challenges, and neglect under abuse. It talks about emotional abuse, physical abuse, or sexual abuse. Um, and if you say you've had any of these happen, you know, in your young um, life, in your childhood life, it increases the the chance exponentially <laughs> that that you might deal with an addiction or some of those other um, behavior uh, health issues that the CDC has identified under household cha challenges, intimate partner violence if it happens in the household, not necessarily to them, but in the household, substance abuse in the household. Um, mental illness in the household, uh, parental separation or divorce in the household, um, an incarcerated household member can be any member of the household, uh, neglect, either emotional neglect or physical neglect. So, you know, this isn't just um, for anyone listening to this saying, well, but I think there's an element of choice. Um, I would encourage you to look at the CDC website and look at the hundreds of peer-reviewed articles that they have available to back up exactly what Paula is saying. Yeah, yeah, it's it really is an amazing thing. And I, I know, yes, Steve, we'll definitely talk about ACE and ACEs in a future podcast. Um, and as, as we think about the childhood trauma and the impact it has, one of the things that I just recently sort of had an aha moment uh, as because of attending one of the workshops with Paula is uh, the woman was sharing uh, a situation of her current adult life that she was going through. And she explained the situation. She had betrayed the trust of her husband and when he got mad, she was telling the story to the audience. Uh, I was one of three men in the audience of women, uh, several hundred women. Uh, but anyhow, as she was sharing the story, she said she then later found herself in the closet. 
uh, in the same place she found herself when she was 12 years old and had been abused as a child. And that's when it clicked in my mind. I had already, I'd already kind of known that it seems we need to go back to the point of where that trauma begins to begin healing. Uh, and, the, and just this lady's telling her own story and she physically, literally went back into the closet as an adult in a fetal position uh, to grieve and to go through the pain she was experiencing. It was a wake up for me to recognize how important it is in the healing process to go back to that. And so I know, Paula, that's part of the work that you do with these folks is you'd mentioned the forgiveness and you'd mentioned some of that earlier, that that becomes a vital part, doesn't it? To, yes. to kind of go back to some of those earliest places where trauma, harm and hurt have begun. So yes, talk uh, to that if you would. What comes yes, to a lot of times it's like they don't even realize that's how they got in the situation they're in. But when they finally get to the point that they go all the way back then it they can start dealing with those things you know yeah and so oftentimes it seems from an emotional perspective as well their actual growth stops at that time as well and uh being a bit of a neuroscience kind of a nerd here <laughs> we do know uh the brain itself is still under development for for women basically the brain uh, is pretty well fully formed and developed by the age of, uh, say, 21 or so. In guys, it takes to about 23 or so. And we know we have neuroplasticity. We continue to grow and we can, our mind is ever-changing. But the predominant physical growth of our brain occurs while we are younger. And the ACE scores happen. Uh, they do the statistics for that 18 and younger. So for our audience sake, if you're not familiar with addiction and not familiar with these situations, keep in mind that you are still developing your brain at ages five, six, seven, eight, and so on. And so if something traumatic happens at that point in time, it can impact the way that your brain functions. And that's, that's Harvard studies. You can find all this information on that. And so I, again, not trying to build a case to excuse people for living a life of addiction, but just to pave the way to help us understand it. So Paula, I know it's not all trauma and it's not all sad times. So talk, talk about some of the good things that you've seen uh, during the times of volunteering. And I know you've done other volunteer work as well. Uh, so if there's other areas yeah. you'd like to address as well. Uh, the, the one thing I guess is just seeing uh, these women, you know, finally seeing that they, they do have a purpose in life. And that they are loved, you know, because a lot of times they're seeking for love. And a lot of times they find that love, you know, in their faith when they come there. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they have, they start just growing and they feel that love, that God loves them. And they have a purpose and they were created for a reason, you know. And uh, it's just wonderful to watch them bloom and, and start, uh, you know, just having that little bit of confidence, that hope. One of the things that I think is uh, they're drained of their hope, too. And when they come in there and they have that hope again, it's like all of a sudden it's like you can just see the light in their eyes. You know, it's uh, um, it's just a beautiful thing to see someone come from 
such a bad situation and move beyond it and grow beyond it and become who God created them to be. You know, Paula, as, as you were, were talking, and I, I kind of want to go back just a little bit, okay. because one of the things that really kind of surprised me, <laughs> and I don't know why it would surprise me, because it makes a lot of sense, but um, that when people come into uh, this home, you don't try fixing them right away, it sounds like, that the first thing you try and do is let them rest. Yes, yes, yes. Usually uh, when you're you come in and you're coming off of drugs, it usually takes three to six months to even realize where you're at and what you're doing. So they need that rest, you know, just so they can just, you know, they don't have the pressures of everything of trying to figure out where they're going to get their meal. You know, how are they going to eat? Where are they going to find shelter? You know, a a lot are just on the streets, you know, and they, Mm -hmm. and they don't know, you know, from day to day, they're just in a, not for, for sure if they're going to be safe, you know, how are they going to eat? You know, just that those different, all those things that just compact not only the pain they're suffering and the things they're going through, but also the weight of that, you know, that I have nothing, I have no place to go. I have nobody, you know? And so that rest is just, Oh, you know, I can rest now. I have food, I have shelter. Uh, I, I don't have my, you know, their mind is still racing, but it's not nearly what it was while they were out there, you know? And you said it can be three to six three months. Three to six months, yes. That And in that time, there's not an expectation that they're going to go out and find a job mm. or that they're going to... No, usually it's about the six month, you know, they can start looking for a job. It's kind of according where they are because a lot of times if they've used drugs for many, many years, it might take longer. Uh, you know, mm. some might have not been on drugs that long, so it, they might can move on quicker. You know, it's just according to where they are. We kind of weigh it out and see where are they at? Are they growing? Are they still stuck? What You know, what's going on? And, and what I find so interesting about that, and especially, you know, fortunately, I haven't been in an experience where, you know, I've, I've certainly had friends and I've known people who have dealt with addiction. I think addiction is so common that almost everybody at some point will either deal with one themselves or they'll or they'll have someone fairly close to them go through one. But I haven't had an immediate family member at this point yet um, dealing with or maybe I just don't know about it. Um, but one of the things that I've heard from friends who um, have had spouses that were alcoholics or, you know, there was just this feeling of why can't they just get rid of this now? <laughs> why can't they just get over it now? And I think it's just really helpful for us to understand that it does take a long time for the brain to begin to kind of reset and be ready. You know, and Leonard talked a little bit about the neuroplasticity, and I don't know, this is me just hypothesizing, but a lot of what we know about when we sleep is that that's when our brain heals. That's when it kind of clears out toxins and, and things like that. And for someone who has been, I guess, I guess what we don't realize is how hard it is to be an addict, how exhausting it is to be an addict. And that's the story that I'm hearing you tell me that I'm finding to be just so interesting um, and and maybe helpful for people who are dealing with this themselves. It makes sense if they're tired, they should be tired. It's hard to be an addict. And a lot of times too, it's like, you know, they're, they're not only coming in with all that, but then they come in and they're getting off their drugs or alcohol. Then they're 
like dope sick trying to get off of it, you know? <laughs> so that's really what really rushes a lot of them right back to it is because they don't want to experience it, that sickness, you know, because yeah. uh, it, it is the withdrawals are horrible, you know, so they don't want to just, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. You know, you feel like here you are doing drugs and you could die anytime, but you're, you're feeling like you're going to die if you don't have it, you know? So it's a, it's one of those things that's, that's another thing that they have to go through is that sickness. Could you describe that sickness a little bit more? Like, what is it that, that you see? Yeah, they, uh, they have like fever, uh, uh, you know, diarrhea, throwing up and feeling like they're dying. You know, it's, it's just, and, you know, so it, that compels them a lot of times when they want to quit that they feel like, oh, I got to have it. I'm going to die, you know, because I have to go through all that. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess it's like about a three day process of trying just to come off of everything, you know. And uh, supposedly alcohol is very dangerous to try to just quit. If you've been an alcoholic for years, it is very dangerous. And, you know, this it takes medical attention because you don't know, you know, they could die from trying to stop on their own. So they don't just feel like they could die. This yeah. is, yeah, they, they legitimately yeah. could die yeah. from coming off of these drugs. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so if, if someone is an addict, they really need to speak with like a healthcare yeah. professional. Yeah. yeah, we usually advise them to go and get detox like at a, a clinic or somewhere, you know, like a, um, because uh, them doing it on their own, it's not, it's not healthy you know, for them to try to do it on their own. Yeah. And as we think about the medical aspects of it, keep in mind, it's both psychological as well as physiological. And so when there is the actual habit of addiction of uh, licks you cigarette smoking, because most people can easily understand that, you know, you smoke after you eat dinner, you smoke before you eat dinner, you have certain times a day you smoke and you have those muscle memory reflexes in doing that. Well, unfortunately, that is somewhat similar with other drugs as well. And so uh, you have the physical as well as the, uh, the habit itself. And so all of those have to be broken along the way and be broken away. And just one quick sidebar note, interesting trivia. And again, I'm the nerd that reads up on all this. Um, all, most all drugs, you can quit cold turkey except for alcohol. Alcohol, you can actually die if you quit cold turkey. Uh, but the other drug, now it's terribly painful to go through cold turkey for any other drugs, but alcohol is one of the few that will actually kill you. And then the last piece of trivia before we get back to some questions here for Paula is uh, both heroin and cigarette smoking are the two toughest addictions to end. So food wow. for thought. Wow. I, I, mean, I, I really would have thought heroin would be one of the hardest just from what I've heard about it, but very yeah. surprised about the, you know, nicotine being as difficult. Um, yeah an addiction to, to quit. So I guess, I guess I won't start smoking after all. (laughs) Take that one off my to-do list. (laughs) So, um, I'm, I'm really curious, Paula, especially now kind of, I've got this image of somebody coming into, um, Leah's house and, and the first thing that happens, you've got a, a, a person who in many senses we could say is, 
emotionally and physically broken. They go through this hellish experience of coming off the drugs and maybe even using, you know, needing medical um, assistance in order to do that. And then you talked about them resting, about them resting for (laughs) um, three to six months and sometimes more, depending on how long. And is is there a point that you say, no, you've rested enough, or is it just you kind of have to let them rest until they're done? Yeah, I'm, I, you do have a uh, ones that come in that, you know, they do need extra rest, or you just kind of have to watch. Everybody's different, so but you do have to watch because sometimes there's some that come in and they just don't they don't want to do anything. And and I, and again, I, I'm sure that goes back to you know not judging them or anything, oh, but, yes, yes. you know, yes. um, but, but there may be some that are a lot more difficult. And you even mentioned there are some that have certain lies in their head that yes. are just almost insurmountable mm-hmm. that you individually can't convince them otherwise. What are some of those lies? Well, it's, it's probably lies that they've heard through other people, you know, like you're not, you're, you're never going to amount to anything. Uh, you're so stupid, you know, if you had a learning disability or something, mm-hmm. or you can't do anything right, say they're just one of those people that just make wrong decisions, you know, constantly. Uh, you're to this, you're to that, you're not enough, you're just not enough, nothing you do is enough, you know. So I think that's a lot of the lies, and I know even some of them, you know, the self-harm is a big thing, you know. Well, what am I, you know, I hate myself. You know, everybody else hates me. I hate myself. Um, just, well, and, yeah. And if I could interject too, I know in, in helping with the women from time to time, some of those lies are not explicit. They're not verbally told, but some of them are yeah. implied. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. you, you talked about the trauma. Well, statistically, most of the trauma occurs from a family member. And so you can only imagine being a child uh, we know as young as two and three years old, some of the some of the women that we have worked with, uh, to have a parent violate them in some way and cause permanent trauma in their lives in some way at that age. And that is, as Paula alluded to earlier or shared earlier, you know, that should be their protector. That should be their provider. That should be the one that loves them unconditionally. But yet that's the very one causing the harm. And so I, I think those lies of the fact they do not love me um, are, are the tough things to overcome. And sometimes it might not be a lie. You know, if you don't have parental love, I mean, you know, there's research that talks about holding a baby within so many hours of being born, those types of things. And so we're, we're talking people that kind of fall outside those, what you and I think of as a normal upbringing. Uh, and they have to contend with that and wrestle with that and find validation. Uh, unfortunately, my brain goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, so safety. You're born without safety in your life. Uh, you can't have love and you can't have safety. Then it's it's hard to progress up the up that little triangle and fulfill some of the other needs you have in life. And I think that's really a lot of what Paul is addressing. Those lies are what they have to overcome there. You know, these are, you know, we, we were talking about them as lies, but to them, they're just core realities. Yeah. Facts or reality. Yeah. 
So those are the things you're contending with then. That's what's happening during those three to six months is you're trying to break down um, those lies. And it sounds like to me from what you've said to me prior, and I think what I've heard so far, is at some point that rest, I'm using maybe a garden analogy, you know, you've planted your seed and then you don't mess with the seed for a while. (laughs) You kind of just let it germinate, let it have some time to dissipate, let them realize that they're, they have worth even during that three to six months when they're just eating and using up resources, <laughs> um, that during that time they have that worth. But at some point, what you have described to me is that little seed in the best search circumstance will start to germinate. It starts to poke its head through. And what does that look like? The very beginnings, not the end result when they're walking out your door and they have their lives put back together to some degree or at least have new tools for it. But what's it look like when how do you know or when do you when do you recognize, okay, this person is now ready to to go into a more proactive state? Well, I, I think it's a lot of their attitude and stuff because I know a lot of times when they come in, you know, they're in that mode of it's it, it and I think this is what really turns a lot of people off towards the them is they're it's all about me kind of thing, you know. Well, you know, they're still angry. They're still wanting what they want. They have an attitude about everything. And so it's like you've got to get, you start seeing that attitude start to change. It's not all about them anymore. All of a sudden, it's mm. almost like the light's coming on. They not only are feeling that purpose and that hope, but they're also being a little bit more c- compassionate and thoughtful to other people. So it's almost like they're changing their, it's all about me thing to, oh, it's just not all about me. You know, I'm growing. I mm-hmm. want to give back. I mean, one of the things that we do there is we give back to the food bank. You know, we, we mm-hmm. volunteer there. And that's, you know, it, it just really, I mean, they, at first they complained about it, but now they love it. They love giving back. They love you know, going out and talking to the people that need food, you know, and packing their food up and all that. So it's, it's like, you know, they're now enjoying giving back too. So, and then you just start seeing that the wheels turning where they start feeling like they do have a voice. They are uh, worth something, you know, they do have hope. Look, this is changing in my life. You know, something's happening that's never happened before, you know, so it's, it's really just beautiful to watch. It's like planting a seed, like you said, and watching it just grow up and bloom like a beautiful flower. Yeah. Well, and, you know, um, Leonard's pointing out to me, he's, he, he likes to have little side conversations. He sends me chats (laughs) and things that, that they are participating in the program in this three to six, you know, it's not that they're lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. I I did want to clarify that for Um, our audience. That, 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 that that there is work being done, you know, and, and this is what you're describing. But what I think is so interesting is that we, we think about it and and you use the analogy of of being able to see that scared little child you know, at the beginning and, and recognizing, you know, and, and unfortunately, I think in many ways, it's been from your own experience that you've been that scared yes, little child. Yes. Um, but that, 
what what do you do when you're a scared little child? The only thing you can do is try and protect yourself. Yes. You know, you've got to look out only for yourself. And only when you get to that place of safety can that child begin to reach out and and help those around them. And it, and, and it's interesting that you say that's kind of the first place that they start to kind of break through the ground is when they start to live for something outside themselves. Yes. yes. And, and have the ability to do that because they didn't have, you know, it's not a critique that they should have been doing that all along and then they wouldn't have this problem. It's now that they have the empowerment, the ability um, to do that. And that is, that is amazing. Yes. So now, I mean, um, you, you've talked quite a lot about uh, there also being, because your, your particular program is a faith-based program yes. um, and, and there being kind of a, a discovery of, so they found um, that they're able to reach outside themselves, but that, that for you, you're seeing, and for them, they're, they're seeing s- some path to continue moving on by finding something even yes. higher than yes. that. And uh, do you want to talk about that a yes, little bit? It's, uh, you know, that uh, when they find, uh, you know, that time where they can take and they, they can go to God with prayer, you know, uh, and they start spending that time with him. They feel that love. And not only that, they feel the love from us too. They, you know, we, they have to trust us and then trust that God is for them and not against them, you know, cause they're, you know, mm-hmm. we're brought up thinking, Oh, God is against us. He's going to bang us over the head. He's going to beat us up. When all along, God loves us and he is wanting us to come to him, you know. And so when they realize that and they start going to him, you know, they have that ex- that that new life experience. And then they start going to him and they start filling up with what he's saying about them instead of what all these other lies and all these thoughts and all these things that they hear. And they start seeing good things of how he loves them, you know, and how he, you know, he wants to protect them. He wants them healed. You know, all of that. It's like all of a sudden somebody loves me. You know, somebody mm-hmm. loves me. And and not only that, you know, we get the opportunity to show that love to them when they come in so they can start feeling that love and then they can feel it even greater from their father, you know. So it really makes a whole big difference in their life to all of a sudden feel like somebody loves me, you know, and I am here for a purpose and I have some hope, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and, you know, especially for me and, and my list, anyone that's listened to this, uh, all the way through all of the all of the podcasts, and there's probably only four people that have, but they know that I'm I'm an atheist. So it's interesting when I when I hear these types of things, but yet I still kind of kind of identify with this concept, you know, especially um, from the perspective that you know I remember in reading the New Testament for the first time, and I'm I I I didn't make it all the way through, but I I made it through Matthew. You mm-hmm. talked about one of your uh, people earlier you, you, that you had someone that um, was <laughs> had had said yeah. that was her favorite favorite book in the Bible, but it also been the only book she had read. Um, but you know, it was interesting for me because um, I'd had a view kind of of Christianity as Christianity is where you go when you're perfect. But like in uh, looking at kind of that 
biblical perspective and of reading Matthew, it was actually quite yes. the opposite, you know, um, that Jesus was most often, and, you know, even though I don't have this view of, of Jesus as being um, a, a non, you know, or more than human entity, on the same note, Jesus was this person who was criticized because uh, who he spent time with were yeah. considered the yes. dredges of society, you know, that that people looked at him and said, "Okay, we can tell by the company you choose the type of individual that you are," and um, and I think there's a lot of power in that. I mean, um, that in fact, I heard someone talking about the two Marys. You've got, um, you know, Mary who is so perfect that she's even a virgin when she gives birth yes. to her first son, <laughs> and then you've got the other Mary. Um, who uh, traditionally, and whether this is true or not, you know, because I know there's some, you know, people disagree on on yeah. what she was like, but then there's Mary Magdalene, who's often seen as yes. that she was a prostitute. And yet both of them yes. are important, you know, to this individual. And I, I believe there's such power in that perspective, in that story. And power in people realizing that they have intrinsic and transcendent yes. value. I think it's amazing that this is something that you are able, you know, to share with them. Yes. And I, I think even with them reading these stories, you know, they can see that, you know, how God does, he does love everybody. You know, it doesn't, you can't be good enough for him. You know, you just have, he just wants to love us. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we teach them is it's not about a religion. It's not about what you do and how you do it. And you got to do this. You got to do that. It's just a, about a relationship. You know, you, uh, you just feel that love and you, you know, you communicate with him and you, you read these stories because not only did you have it bad, but these people had it bad too. And he loved them. He was always trying to, woo them in and love them, you know, and that's kind of what we want them to feel that love. You know, it's not that you have to do this thing or, you know, quit doing this, quit doing that. It's about the love. It's about all about the love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really it's, it's that acceptance, you know, it is yes. how they see that love is just that unconditional acceptance because they've, they've lived their entire life earning whatever they've got in one way or another, just like you alluded to, well, not alluded, you outright said earlier, and I know it to be true, you know, the, the turning tricks for drugs and things like that, that they've found themselves into compromising positions, but they've always had to earn everything they've got, despite what people look at them and think that they've taken everything, but there's, there's a cost that they have given for everything they've taken as well. And so for them to receive something free, without condition is, uh, let's face it, for most of us, that's pretty abnormal. <laughs> and for them, I think it's very impactful as well. It sounds like healing. Yeah. We've even had women that's come in from a religious background that was abusive, you know, to where, you know, they had been abused. Yeah, they had been abused because of the religious beliefs and which that's the hardest people to reach. Because they've been abused by people that were so-called Christians, you know, to, to 
you know, fall into that religious mindset instead of the love. And so they, a lot of times they don't want to have anything to do with that because they've been through so much abuse with that, you know? And so it's kind of hard for them to understand. No, it's not about that. It's about the love. It's not about the religion. It's not about you, you having to do this, you having to do that. It's about a relationship. And when you have that relationship, then that, it just propels you to want to, to have that love, feel that love and not feel like that shame that you're already feeling about yourself, you know, and all the things that you feel about yourself, that is not the way that God feels about, you know, them. And it Mm -hmm. makes them, you know, they just really finally understand, listen, this is me feeling this way about me and other people making me feel this way. God really actually loves me and wants me to have a relationship with him. So it sounds like, so they come in, I'm just kind of timelining this. Okay. <laughs> their, their lives, their lives are broken. Uh-huh. They, um, they get a moment uh, to kind of rest, but they actually first go through a, a kind of a hellish experience of, of getting off the drugs. Um, and then um, they start to find hope. And then as they find that hope, eventually that hope transforms into love. Yes. And is it at that point that you say, yay, we're done? Or is there a a step beyond that? Uh, No, I think it's a continual, it's a continual growing. It's a continual, you know, uh, you know, some can quit and say, no, I want to go back and do this. You know, I want to go back to the drugs. I want to go back, you know, but there's and it's it's really very few that continue on and grow and restore their lives and their families and all that it's very very few but if we have that opportunity that we can reach them and we can just even plant that little seed that they're worth something and their life has a meaning mm-hmm. you know maybe down the road maybe they'll get it later you know uh but just having, even if there's one, it's worth it, you know, to see that one turn their life around and succeed in life, you know. And that's really interesting. And you've continued doing this, even though it sounds like if you were just to crunch the numbers, most end up going back to their addictions. Is that correct? Yes. And I have seen a lot of them die in their addiction of overdoses. Oh, my you know, there's a whole lot of it that we've lost in, with overdoses. How do you how how do you go back and do it over and over and over <laughs> when you've seen those results? You know, because you I know you you put your heart into every single woman that comes in there. I I can't imagine that there's some that you go, well, I'm just not going to get attached to her. Yes, I think how we do you have do that? to. We have to. You know, sometimes, I mean, there's been times I feel like, why am I even doing this? This, You know, I just need to give up. And it's like something just says, no, no, don't give up. Just don't give up. Just keep going. Keep doing. Keep reaching out. You know, eventually, you know, it's not like, okay, they might not catch it right now. Maybe they'll catch it two months down the road. Maybe it's five months. Maybe it's, you know, however long it takes, you know, it's like, and maybe they might not catch it at all, but. I just hope and pray that they will eventually feel that worth, feel that hope and feel like they, you know, feel that purpose that they have, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. It's very, very, very powerful. And, um, I mean, I, 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 I think as we look 
at, and, and I remember actually hearing um, years ago, and I was really surprised by it because I'd always heard like quitting smoking that, yeah. you know, you needed to quit cold turkey. And then if you didn't succeed, it would, you'd never succeed. And then I found that the statistics of it were, were quite different, that the more often someone tried to quit, the more likely that they would eventually quit. And, and I, it sounds like that that is, that there's some truth in that here too, but we're still kind of in a, a stage maybe even medically that we haven't really learned how to um, save most people from addiction. Steve, if I could interject, um, there are so many variables involved with addiction that our society currently isn't really dealing with. Um, you know, so we already talked about ACE. Well, if we could fix adverse childhood experiences, we would eliminate a lot of need for any care for addiction because so many people, that's that's the genesis of, of their addiction, of what, what they're trying to band-aid, what they're trying to fix, what they're trying to medicate. Uh, so there's that. Then, of course, poverty itself comes into play. Being in poverty is one of the ACE scores, you know, and so that heightens the, the possibilities of this. It's not to say everybody is going to land in poverty, I mean, everybody is going to land in addiction if they're in poverty, but it, it adds to the, the causes. Uh, then the fact that we as a culture, as a society, are still wrestling with, is addiction a choice or is it truly uh, uh, something that a person does not control? And so the, just the stigma, we talk about the stigma of mental health. Well, there's obviously there's a stigma of addiction as well. And it certainly is challenging because the results of addiction are often so ugly. You know, people steal, they lie, they take things, you know, all of those things that certainly we, we don't want to embrace those behaviors, but we have to understand what's behind the behavior if we're going to help those people and work with those people. Um, so I, I think there's just so much involved in addiction. And then I know research is being done from a scientific perspective to figure out genetically what to do. Uh, you know, addiction is a spectrum. You know, you and I could use the exact same drug, but I may fall on a spectrum where it heightens me and sensitizes me in a way that I want to crave it or that I end up craving it, not want to, but I end up craving it much more than you, you know, and then recovery is a spectrum. Resiliency is one of the key steps in recovery. And that's a spectrum as well. So I may be more resilient and go through a rehab once and recover. We've seen that happen. Uh, but oftentimes they're not as resilient. And so we know folks that have gone to rehabs 10 and 15 times. Uh, and, and, you know, in society too, insurance pays for 30 days. Well, we just talked about it earlier. In 30 days, you're off the drug, but that doesn't mean it's out of your system to the point that you've recovered. Nobody recovers in 30 days. That's foolish to believe. But yet insurance only covers 30 days. And so that really is just simply detoxing a person, but they've not recovered. And so who can afford, you know, Leah's House is an absolutely free program run by all volunteers. Not every program's that way. There are plenty of programs that people play plenty of money, and we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars to go through. Uh, but they're still, it's a 30-day program. You can pay $20,000 for a 30-day program. Wow. And wow. It, it, it cannot fix you in 30 days. 
uh, it can only dry you out. And but you've got to have some kind of ongoing care. And even with these women, it's a 12 month program, Leah's house is. And the idea is at the end of 12 months that they'll be able to go ahead and re-enter the workforce. But we'd like to add a second year to that so we can guide them through re-entering the workforce, you know, so they can have some autonomy and some independence, begin to save money on their own and not be forced to do everything they're doing. And of course, they're, they're technically there voluntarily. It's not anybody's forced to do anything. Mm-hmm. But if they don't cooperate, they won't be in the program. Yeah. Uh, but there's a need. It really needs to be like a two-year program so people can get on their feet, get stabilized, begin to reacquaint with their children. And of course, that takes a long time for all of those family members that have been lied to, stolen from, and hurt from the individual that was in addiction. It takes up a real long time to build that trust up. And so they need some safety. That individual overcoming addiction needs some safety as they tread through those waters and rebuild those relationships. And I mean, you need a PhD in psychology to know how to handle any of these situations, you know, and these gals oftentimes have not completed their high school educations because of their addictions. And it's not to say they're stupid by any means. They are sharp as all get out, but they don't have it on paper. And so to navigate these waters is sometimes trying, you know, balance a checkbook, uh, pay for a house note, get insurance. Well, you know, when you've had been incarcerated and you've had your license revoked and there's thousands of dollars sometimes that they have to pay to get back on their feet to get a driver's license to drive to work and so it, it's just this <laughs> they just can't get a break <laughs> yes <laughs> yes so I'm, I'm not trying to paint a gruesome picture but i'm trying to paint what reality is i mean you know we have a, a friend with a she owes $10,000 in fines because she was incarcerated when she should have appeared in court and she didn't appear in court because she was incarcerated. Therefore she was fined. And then of course they put interest on the fines. And so if she ever wants to drive again, she owes over $10,000 just to get her driver's license back. And so, you know, just some of the things that happen in the system. And that is the least likely person to be able to come up with $10,000, you know, because yes. how do you do that without having transportation and a way to get to work? And yeah, it's just yes. a cycle that just continues, you know, in, in many ways, I, when, as I studied our, our criminal system a little bit, um, I, I, I did come to the conclusion that our criminal system is 100% broken that um, to some degree, if there is someone so dangerous, you just need to remove them from society. It can do that. But for all the rest, it, it, it's not helping. Mm-hmm. And um, wow, overwhelming. You know, and the other day you were also telling me, and I, I, would, I wonder if you'd be willing to share this um, with our listeners, but um, you're talking about just the difficulty of getting help if you have an addiction. You talked about, well, if you're under 18, you really can't unless your parents um, are... are <laughs> pushing yeah. for it. And, and again, if they have insurance, because remember insurance is tied to your employment. Um, if you're living in poverty, it's very likely that there may be a lack of employment or a lack of employment that brings benefits, you know, so um, that would also ring true that there might be uh, limited or no access to insurance, or if it is insurance, it's through 
one of the exchange programs and you might have to go with one of those lower funds that have such a high deductible that you would still, you know, even if it's a thousand dollars deductible, it, it would be cost prohibitive for people to get in there. So if you wouldn't mind just talking through the challenges that exist for someone who does want to get help. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk to that a little bit. And Paul, I'll, I'll definitely need you to jump in because you're much closer than me, but just some practical things that I'm aware of here. So uh, for our listening audience, I am in, I live in Mississippi, which is another state from where Memphis resides. Memphis is in Tennessee. So I'm, I'm 10, 12 miles from the city line, uh, 10, 12 miles from the other state. So Memphis has a plethora of things available to it. But if I am not a Tennessee resident, I can't partake of those things. Uh, so I live in Mississippi. So therefore, I cannot cross the line to get help for my situation, even though it's 10 miles away. So my best help is to drive an hour away to Oxford to get some help, quite likely. Now, there are things right here in the county I live in as well. But if I'm going to get the best professional help I can, I need to at least drive an hour hour and a half away to Oxford, or perhaps three to four hours down to Jackson, because driving 30 minutes to Memphis is not allowable because of crossing that state line. They won't fund me because I'm not an addict in their state. There's federal and state funding involved. And then as I was sharing with Steve, that yeah, if I'm an addict under the age of 18, so far as I know, there's not a home available in Memphis to go, I mean, excuse me, in, in, the, in the area for that matter, to go to because I'm under age, therefore I, I can't go to a treatment center without parental insurance. But yet I could be in, on my own from the age of 15. I mean, think about it, if I'm an addict, I could easily be on my own from the age 12, 13, 14, 15, whatever the case might be. Typically it is uh, 15, 16 is kind of a tipping point. Uh, so I, I would be outside of my parental care by that point, I've likely burn those bridges and been disowned, so they're not going to insure me. Uh, if I'm a female, uh, I have fewer op options than what men do. There's much more options for a male that's overcoming addiction because there are more facilities avail for, available for a male. If I'm a woman and I have an addiction uh, and I have children, so we still oftentimes, women are the custodians of their children. So if I'm a woman and I'm an addict wanting to recover, and I have my children with me. And admittedly, that's a pretty small group of people that that happens, but it does happen. There is not a home for a woman in addiction to, to go to if she has her children. There is a woman's home for women that are abused. So if I have a husband that is abusing me and I have children, I can go to it but I have to have somebody abusing me. Another facility that we had a friend try to go to would only take people that were in their addiction. And she had sobered and she was no longer in her addiction for at least 30 to 60 days. They wouldn't accept her into the home because she wasn't in her addiction. And so she has the option of going out and using, so she qualifies, or remaining on the streets. Uh, Paula, Paula, talk to some of the, if you're aware of other situations that I might be missing here. Well, I know if women have lost their home or their place, uh, there's not really anything that's out there for them. You know, these, most of the, it's either addiction or some kind of 
issue that they have. You know, you've got some women that lose their place and everything, and maybe they've got a job and a car and all that, but they don't, they, they need to keep working, you know, so they can get back on their feet. And there's not a home that really houses women that are just homeless and no place to go, you know. Uh, usually it's, you know, you got to have an addiction or alcohol problem or something like that, you know. So uh, there's a lot of limits on, on, you know, what kind of people, you know, usually you zero in on what kind of people that you can take in. And that's how, you know, most of them are drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Or uh, the abuse side is, it, they, you know, like the one that takes in uh, abused women with children. They won't, you know, usually they won't just take in a woman. <laughs> Sometimes it's abuse. Usually it's got to be a woman with children. So there's just a lot of stipulations and a lot of different things that, you know, for that. But we don't really have anything set up for someone that's trying to get their life back together and that's not an addiction or, or have an alcohol problem. You know? Yeah. And it's no slam against those organizations because they really have to specialize. I mean, you can't throw kids in the mix into just anything, you know, and, and dealing with somebody who is still currently in abuse is different than dealing with somebody who is on the streets escaping abuse. And so, you know, don't, don't misunderstand as we speak about that but it just creates such a challenge. And so far, almost everybody that I'm aware of, uh, Paula's had to help get their birth certificate so they could go get a social security card so then they could get the driver's license back if they're eligible to. And so just think of all of that weighing in before you start your first job and the cost involved and the amount of time and involved. Their fines they have. And the fines have to be paid, exactly. Um, one of the women that we recently dealt with had to get her driver's license. And <laughs> do, do you know how many trips it took, Paula, for her to finally get that license? Unreal. Uh, it's at least, literally at least six trips. Um, she owned, again, I'm on, the, I'm on the state line. So she owned a fine in the other state, paid the fine, and Tennessee didn't communicate to Mississippi, so she had to go back to Tennessee, found out something else, went back to Mississippi. Mississippi needed something else, so she had to go back. And it was this back and forth. And, and finally, uh, somehow things kind of slipped into place where she was able to get a driver's license. But it was just uh, horrendous what she had to go through. You know, they couldn't just give her a list and say, hey, if you do all this, we'll give you a license. It was one piece at a time. And and now, then this is, mind you, this is somebody that's dealing with all the emotions and all the recovering and everything that she's been through uh, with very little aid from the outside. And, and they're supposed to cope with that. And I know how I feel when I receive a mail uh, a piece of mail say, telling my, my insurance is due again when I've already paid it. How upset I get that I'm freaking out thinking maybe they didn't get my money. What's going on? Why am I getting another bill for my insurance? Well, this is a car. This is transportation. Uh, and, and they're having to maintain some emotional calm and intelligence and handle the situation without going back to that band-aid and going back to what they've been medicating themselves with for 10, 15 years or more. Yeah, these are highly vulnerable individuals. 
you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting as you talk about this. And again, I think it's, it's I'm glad you brought up the point that we're not <laughs> trying to say that, you know, that these organizations are, are, you know, need to open their doors wider. I think their doors are open as wide as they possibly can. But it, it does point out that from um, a social perspective, we don't have a, a, a wide enough net to catch the individuals and to help the individuals who are dealing with addiction, that we are extremely deficient. <laughs> and this is where organizations like the one Paul is working in can, can help to some degree because they, they're, they're trying to fill a gap that exists where governments fail. <laughs> they just don't help these individuals or are not capable of helping these individuals. And especially today, you know, addiction is a much older pandemic than the pandemic that we're dealing with right now um, with COVID-19. But how has that affected your funding and your ability to keep your doors open, Paula? Well, I know it's affected the financial end of it a lot. And then, uh, uh, not only that, I've also noticed at working with the, at the food bank, you know, there's more and more people coming for food and there's people that's, you know, they're living in a hotel coming to get food, you know? So what is happening is this, uh, this is causing poverty, you know, even more poverty. So that's going to just make more issues with more people because the more they don't have the money, what are they going to turn to? They're going to turn mm-hmm. to these alcohol, drugs, abuse. They're going to, you know, abuse their children or whatever. You know, it's because of the frustration of not having the funds to take care of them. So it's just like it's it's getting bigger. The whole situation's getting bigger just because of, you know, people that had jobs before now don't have jobs. You know, uh, people that had just money to get food. They don't have that anymore. They're losing their homes. They're losing, they're just losing everything, you know? So it's, it's really, um, affected pro the, the nonprofits really bad because people are that might've give before don't have it to even for themselves right now, you know? So, uh, so it really puts a crunch on all of them, you know, for the funds that are coming in or the, or the, you know, uh, people that donate. And so. Paula, you shared too with the food pantry that uh, yes. they they were short workers, right? So talk to them oh, yeah, just the a little bit. Short workers volunteer, yeah. So why yeah. why were they short workers? Kind of well, because that. of the overwhelming amount of people that's coming in. I mean, we started volunteering. We were just volunteering on Thursday. Now we're volunteering on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I mean, uh, it's picked the people that need food and stuff it's picked up to where it's just overwhelming and so we're needing more volunteers to come in and volunteer at the food bank just to help in my understanding too a number of the volunteers that work at that food bank are elderly folks and at-risk folks and so therefore they can't show up and volunteer because they're at risk is that right yes the majority of our volunteers are older people and so really it's a dangerous thing for them to, but I'm, you know, they are really troopers. I mean, they're there, they're volunteering. And, uh, I mean, a lot of them are just over the 70 mark, you know, 70 and 80 mark, you know, it's, a, it's just amazing to see these older people just reaching out and trying to, you know, to reach out and help. And I think it's worth reiterating again, they're, they're heroically doing this 
<laughs> from the perspective that they are an at-risk group of individuals. Yes, yes. And yet they're still coming out because they believe that what they're doing is the right thing to do. Yes, yes. So much to think about with that, especially as you talk about, you know, and, and uh, I think, I, I don't know when, when Leonard and I will do our, our um, um, podcast on, on talking about those adverse child experiences that the CDC talks about, but uh, that's something I hadn't really thought about until you mentioned it. As we go through COVID, yes, we're looking at another generation of individuals who are going to have these adverse child exper- experiences, yes. and yes. we can try and address it now and maybe make a real difference or we can wait until they're adults and they have, you know, and, and this is really, I think where a lot of, um, and definitely try not to get political here, but where a lot of individuals are upset with the way we fund our governments and things and fund the, where we put that, that sometimes we put a lot of resources towards the fruits of a problem and not towards the roots yes. of the problems, you yes. know, that, I, I certainly am grateful to have a police force <laughs> because there's been times I've needed to call them and, um, you know, and I was glad that they came and I'm glad that they came armed and, <laughs> and able to resolve the issue. I had a, um, a person in my, in my back alley years ago who I heard the gunshots go off and a neighbor of mine had been shot. And I was very grateful I could call the police and have them come. Yes. Um, you know, so I'm certainly not saying um, that, that we, we need to, abolish our police force, but maybe we do need to look at things from the perspective of if we fix these root issues, if we, tr- if we really, you know, um, I, w- I was looking at some statistics um, in our, in our cities and states, we um, fund our police force at about four times the rate that we fund our um, social services. Those are the ones that protect children, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones that actually provide homes for them. You know, that we, we sometimes provide better homes for criminals yes. um, than we did for the children who were taken out of their homes because they had been abused, who eventually become the criminals later on because yes. they had these adverse child experiences. Right. It's not that they were bad people. It's not that they're inhuman creatures. But if we can somehow shift our focus just like with COVID, we're all looking for a vaccine. (laughs) You know, the vaccine to addiction is a healthier environment for children to grow up in. Yes. Yeah. Well, and we really are starting to run out of time here. So Paula, thanks for (laughs) sharing. We might have started that about 10 minutes ago, but it was such a great conversation. So thank you for anyone who's continued listening. (laughs) Thank you guys. Well, yeah, and, and and just to respond to which, where, what you've thrown out there, Steve, that it's so much food for thought, and and I know you know we can do another whole podcast or more about where our focus has shifted. I think as a nation, we've always had a tendency to focus more on the end results rather than more on the prevention on the front end, uh, and, and certainly you know we can we can look at the statistics and see it ties back to the eighties. Uh, because one way or another, it's going to cost us. And we know that for a fact. It's either pay now or pay later. And uh, I had the opportunity to see Zig Ziglar speak one time, and he made mention of the fact that paying now is the sacrifice that we make now, but it's always cheaper to pay now than it is to pay later. You know, think about your automobile, think about your home. If you pay cash now, it's a massive sacrifice, but you don't have all that residual interest that gets added to it. 
And so for our listening audience to tie all this together, you know, what we've just been listening to is Paula share her experiences of her volunteering. I mean, my gosh, we have more manpower available in this nation now than ever to volunteer and to help bring about solutions to some of these things that we're just scratching the surface of in this podcast today. And so my challenge to you would be to find an organization that's doing something that you can support and volunteer and make yourself available, invest your time, talent, and treasure, and see what you can do to help curb some of these things that we are seeing at the root rather than waiting to see the fruit that it bears. Steve, any last thoughts on your part? Oh, I feel like that was very well said. And and just another huge thank you, uh, Paula, for coming on. And hopefully we have you on again okay. sometime in the future. Thank you. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to us. Love to hear your thoughts, as always. So certainly reach out to Steve and I at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Maybe this has inspired you or ticked you off. Who knows? But let us know. Drop a note there and tell us. And once again, we want to thank our sponsor, Upwards Unlimited. As always, that's Upwards, W-O-R-D-S, unlimited.com, where they will help you and your business with conversations, connections, collaborations, and community. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) 